0: Chapter Nine of the Book of Buried Treasure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Buried Treasure by Ralph Delahay Payne. Chapter Nine: The Pirates' Hoard of Trinidad of all the freebooters treasure for which search is still made by means of curious information having to do with charts and other plausible records the most famous are those buried on cocos islands in the pacific and on the rocky islet of trinidad in the south atlantic these places are thousands of miles apart the former are off the coast of costa rica the latter several hundred miles from the nearest land of brazil and not to be confused with the better-known british colony of trinidad in the leeward islands group of the west indies Each of these treasures is of immense value, to be reckoned in millions of dollars, and their stories are closely interwoven, because the plunder came from the same source at about the same time. Both narratives are colored by piracy, bloodshed, and mystery. That, Cocos Island perhaps the more luridly romantic of the two by reason of an earlier association with the English buccaneers of Dampier's crew. Each island has been dug over and ransacked at frequent intervals during the last century, and it is safe to predict that expeditions will be fitting out for Cocos or Trinidad for many years to come. The history of these notable treasures is a knotty scheme to disentangle. Athward its picturesque pages marches a numerous company of bold and imaginative liars, every man of them ready to swear on a stack of Bibles that his is the only true, unvarnished version of the events which caused the gold and jewels and plate to be hidden. However, when all the fable and fancy are winnowed out, facts remaining are enough to make any red-blooded adventurer yearn to charter a rakish schooner and muster a crew of kindred spirits. During the last days of Spanish rule on the west coast of South America, the wealthiest city left of that vast domain, won by the conquistadors and held by the viceroys, was Lima, the capital of Peru. Founded in 1535 by Francisco Pizarro, it was the seat of government of South America for centuries. The viceregal court was maintained in magnificent state, and the archbishop of Lima was the most powerful prelate of the continent. Here the religious orders and the inquisition had their centers. Of the almost incredible amount of gold and silver taken from the mines of the country, much remained in Lima to pile up fortunes for the grandees and officials, or to be fashioned into massy ornaments for the palaces, residences, churches, and for the great cathedral which still stands to proclaim the grandeur that was Spain's in the olden days, When Bolivar, the liberator, succeeded in driving the Spanish out of Venezuela, and in 1819 set up the Free Republic of Colombia, the ruling class of Peru took alarm, which increased the panic as soon as it was known that the revolutionary forces were organizing to march south and assault Lima itself. There was a great running to and fro among the wealthy Spanish merchants, the holders of fat positions under the viceroy, and the gilded idlers who swaggered and ruffled it on riches won by the swords of their two-fisted ancestors, it was feared that the rebels of Bolivar and San Martin would loot the city and confiscate the treasure, both public and private, which consisted of bullion, plate, jewels, and coined gold. Precious property, to the value of six million sterling, was hurried into the fortress of Lima for safekeeping, and after the capture of the city by the Army of Liberation, Lord Dundonald, the English admiral in command of the Chilean fleet assisting the revolutionists, offered to let the Spanish governor depart with two-thirds of this treasure if he would surrender the remainder and give up the fortifications without a fight. The Peruvian liberator, San Martín, set these terms aside, however, and allowed the Spanish garrison to evacuate the place, carrying away the six million sterling. This immense treasure was soon scattered far and wide by sea and land. It was only part of the riches dispersed by the conquest of San Martín and his patriots, People of Lima, hoping to send their fortunes safe home to Spain before the plundering invaders should make a clean sweep, put their valuables on board all manner of sailing vessels which happened to be in harbor, and a fugitive fleet of merchantmen steered out of the hostile coast of Peru, the holds piled with gold and silver, cabins crammed with officials of the state and church, and other residents of rank and station. At the same time, they were sent to see the treasure of the great cathedral of Lima, all its jeweled chalices monstrances and vestments the solid gold candlesticks and shrines the vast store of precious furniture and ornaments which had made this one of the richest religious edifices of the world there had not been so much dazzling booty afloat at one time since the galleon play fleets were in their heyday during the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries in eighteen twenty there were no more of those great buccaneers and gentlemen adventurers who had singed the beard of the king of spain in the wake of francis drake They had sailed and fought and plundered for glory as well as gain, or for revenge as much as for doubloons. Their successors as sea rovers were pirates of low degree, base wretches of a sordid commercialism who preyed on honest merchant skippers of all flags and had little taste for fighting at close quarters. The older race of sea rogues had been wolves, the pirates of the early nineteenth century were jackals many one of these gentry got wind of the fabulous treasure that had been sent afloat from lima and there is no doubt that much of it failed to reach spain while in some instances these fleeing ships were boarded and scuttled by pirate craft in others the lust of gold was too strong for the seamen to whom the rare cargoes had been entrusted and they rose and took the riches away from their hapless passengers It has been believed by one treasure-seeking expedition after another, even to this day, that Captain Thompson of the British trading brig, Mary Deer, received on board in the harbor of Lima as much as $12 million worth of gold and silver, and that he and his crew, after killing the Spanish owners, sailed north in the Pacific and buried the booty on Cocos Island. Captain Thompson somehow escaped and joined a famous pirate of that time, Benito Bonito who accumulated a large treasure, which he also buried on Cocos Island. The British Admiralty records show that Bonito was overhauled in this turn by the frigate espigle and that rather than be hanged in chains, he very handsomely blew out his brains on his own deck. This same treasure of Lima, or part of it, furnished the foundation of the story belonging to the volcanic islet of Trinidad in the South Atlantic, One version of this is that the pirates who chose this hiding place had been the crew of a fast English schooner in the slave trade. While at sea, they disposed of their captain by the unpleasant method of pinning him to the main mast with a boarding pike through his vitals. Then the black flag was hoisted, and with a new skipper they stood to the southward, finding a great amount of plunder in a Portuguese ship which had on board a Jew-diamond-dealer, among other valuable items. After taking an East Indiaman, another tempting craft... They buried the total proceeds on the desolate, uninhabited island of Trinidad, intending to return for it before the end of the cruise. Unfortunately for the successful pirates, they ran afoul of a heavily armed and manned merchant vessel, which shot away their rudder, tumbled their spars about their rascally ears, boarded them, great spirit and determination, and clapped the shackles on the twenty gentlemen of fortune who had survived the engagement. These were carried into Havana and turned over to the Spanish authorities, who gleefully hang 19, not 20, mark you. One had to make a marvelous escape in order to hand down the secret of the treasure to posterity. This survivor died in bed in England at a very great age, so the story runs, and of course he had a chart to set the next generation to digging. The earlier statements of this narrative may be cast aside as worthless. The real, true pirate of Trinidad was not in the slave schooner which captured the Jew diamond dealer of the Portuguese ship, An odd confusion of facts caused the mistake. While Benito Bonito was harrying the Spanish shipping of the Pacific and burying his treasure on Cocos Island, there was on the Atlantic a bloodthirsty pirate by the name of Benito de Soto. He was a Spaniard who sailed out of Buenos Aires in the year 1827, bound to Africa to smuggle a cargo of slaves. The crew was composed of French, Spanish, and Portuguese desperados, and led by the mate and de Soto, they marooned the captain and ran away with the ship on a pirate voyage, they plundered and burned and slaughtered without mercy. their most nefarious exploit being the capture of the British merchant ship Morningstar, bound from Ceylon to England in eighteen twenty eight and carrying as passengers several army officers and their wives and twenty-five invalided soldiers after the most fiendish conduct. Soto and his crew drove the survivors into the hold of the Morning Star and fastened the hatches, leaving the vessel the founder for they had taken care to bore numerous auger holes in her bottom. By a miracle of good fortune, prisoners forced the hatches and were taken off next day by a passing vessel. Benito de Soto met his end as the result of being wrecked in his own ship off the Spanish coast. He was caught in Gibraltar and hanged by the English governor. An army officer who saw him turned off related that he was a very proper figure of a pirate. There was no driveling fears upon him. He walked firmly at the tail of the fatal cart, gazing sometimes at his coffin, sometimes at the crucifix, which he held in his hand. This he frequently pressed to his lips, repeated the prayers spoken in his ear by the attendant clergyman, and seemed regardless of everything but the world to come, A gallows was erected beside the water, fronting neutral ground. He mounted the cart, as firmly as he had walked behind it, and held up his face to heaven and the beating rain. Calm, resigned, but unshaken, and finding the halter too high for his neck, he boldly stepped upon his coffin and placed his head in the noose then watching the first turn of the wheels he murmured farewell all and leaned forward to facilitate his fall the black boy was acquitted at cadiz but the men who had fled to the caracas as well as those arrested after the wreck were convicted executed their limbs severed and hung on iron hooks as a warning to all other pirates this Benito, who died somewhat better than he had lived, was not hanged at Havana, it will be perceived. And the version of the Trinidad treasure story already outlined is apparently a hodgepodge of the careers of Benito de Soto and of Benito of Cocos Island, with a flavor of fact so far as it refers to the 20 pirates who were carried to Cuba to be strung up or garroted. The Spanish archives of that island record that this gang was executed and that they had been found guilty of plundering ships sailing from Lima shortly after the city had been entered by the revolutionists. Their association with the island of Trinidad is explained herewith, as it was told to E.F. Knight, an Englishman, who organized and commanded an expedition which sailed in search of the treasure in 1889. There was at that time near Newcastle, England, a retired sea captain who had been in command of an East Indiaman engaged in the opium trade in the years 1848 to 1850. The China Seas were then infested by pirates, said Mr. Knight's informant. So that his vessel carried a few guns and a larger crew than is usual in these days. He had four quartermasters, one of whom was a foreigner. Captain was not sure of his nationality, but thought he was a Finn. On board the vessel, the man went under the name of the Pirate, because of a deep scar across his cheek, which gave him a somewhat sinister appearance. He was a reserved man, better educated than the ordinary sailor, and possessing a good knowledge of navigation... The captain took a liking to him and showed him kindness on various occasions. This man was attacked by dysentery on the voyage from China to Bombay, and by the time the vessel reached port he was so ill, in spite of the captain's nursing, that he had to be taken to the hospital. He gradually sank, and when he found that he was dying, he told the captain, who frequently visited him, that he felt very grateful for the kind treatment given him, and that he would prove his gratitude by revealing a secret which might make the captain one of the richest men in England. He then asked the skipper to go to his chest and take out amid a parcel. This contained a piece of old tarpaulin with a plan of an island of Trinidad upon it. The dying soldier told him that at the spot indicated, that is, at the base of the mountain known as Sugarloaf, there was an immense treasure buried, consisting principally of gold and silver plate and ornaments, the plunder of Peruvian churches which certain pirates had concealed there in the year 1821 much of this plate he said came from the cathedral of lima having been carried away from there during the war of independence when the spaniards were escaping the country and that among other riches were several massive gold candlesticks he further stated that he was the only survivor of the pirates as all the others had been captured by the Spaniards and executed in Cuba some years before, and consequently it was probable that no one but himself knew the secret. He then gave the captain instructions as to the exact position of the treasure in the bay under the sugar loaf, and enjoined him to go there and search for it, as it was almost certain that it had not been removed mr knight who was a young barrister of london investigated this story with much diligence and discovered that the captain aforesaid had sent a son to trinidad in eighteen eighty to try to identify the marks shown on the old pirate's tarpaulin chart he landed from a sailing ship did no digging for lack of equipment but reported that the place tallied exactly with the description although a great landslide of reddish earth had covered the place where the treasure was hid This evidence was so convincing that in 1885 an expedition was organized among several adventurous gentlemen of the South shields who chartered a bark of 600 tons, the aurea, and fitted her in a large outlay with surf boats, picks, shovels, timber, blasting powder, and other stores. This party found the island almost inaccessible because of the wild, rock-bound coast, the huge breakers which beat about it from all sides, and the lack of harbors and safe anchorage after immense difficulty eight men were landed with a slender store of provisions and a few of the tools the dismal aspect of the island the armies of huge land crabs which tried to devour them burning heat and the hard labor without enough food or water soon disheartened his band of treasure-seekers and they dug no more than a small trench before courage and strength forsook them singling to their ships they were taken off worn out and ill and thus ended the efforts of the expedition in the same year, an American skipper chartered a French sailing vessel in Rio de Janeiro and sailed for Trinidad with four Portuguese sailors to do his digging for him. They were ashore several days but found no treasure, and vanished from the story after this brief fling with the dice of fortune. Now, Knight was of a different stuff from these other explorers. He was a first-class amateur seaman who had sailed his yacht Falcon to South America in 1880 and was both experienced and capable afloat and ashore. While well, bound from Matavideo to Bahia, he had touched at Trinidad. Curious to see this remote islet so seldom visited, this was before he heard the buried treasure story. Therefore, when he became acquainted several years later with the chart and information left by the old pirate, he was able to verify the details of his own knowledge, and he roundly affirmed, in the first place, his carefully prepared plan of the island, the minute directions he gave as to the best landing and his description of the features of the bay on whose shores the treasure was concealed proved beyond doubt to myself and others who know Trinidad that he, or if not himself some informant of his, had landed on this so rarely visited islet, and not only landed but passed some time on it, and carefully surveyed the approaches to the bay so as to be able to point out the dangers and show the safest passage through the reefs. This information could not have been obtained from any pilot book. The landing recommended by previous visitors is at the other side of the island. This bay is described by them as inaccessible, and the indications on the Admiralty chart are completely erroneous. And beyond this, the quartermaster must have been acquainted with what was taking place in two other distant portions of the world during the year of his professed landing on the desert island. He knew of the escape of pirates with the cathedral plate of Lima. He was also aware that shortly afterwards there were hanged in Cuba the crew of a vessel that had committed acts of piracy on the Peruvian coast. It is scarcely credible that an ordinary seaman, even allowing that he was superior in education to the average of his fellows, could have pieced these facts together so ingeniously into this plausible story. This argument has merit, and it was persuasive enough to cause Knight to buy the staunch cutter, alert, muster a company of gentlemen-volunteers, Ship a crew, and up anchor from Southampton for Trinidad. There was never a better-found treasure expedition than this in the alert. The nine partners, each of whom put up 100 pounds toward the expenses, were chosen from 150 eager applicants. Articles of agreement provided that one-twentieth of the treasure recovered was to be received by each adventurer, and he in turn bound himself to work hard and obey orders. In the equipment was a drilling apparatus for boring through earth and rock, a hydraulic jack for lifting huge boulders, portable forge and anvil, iron wheelbarrows, crowbars, shovels, and picks galore, a water distilling plant, a rapid-fire gun, and a full complement of repeating rifles and revolvers. A few days before the alert was ready to sail from Southampton, an elderly naval officer boarded the cutter and was kind enough to inform Mr. Knight of another buried treasure which he might look for on his route to Trinidad, The story had been hidden for many years among the documents of the Admiralty, and as a matter of government record, it is, of course, perfectly authentic. In 1813, the Secretary of the Admiralty instructed Sir Richard Bickerton, commanding at Portsmouth, to send in the first king's ship touching at Madeira, a seaman who had given information concerning a hidden treasure, in order that the truth of his story might be tested. The Admiralty order was entrusted to Captain Hercules Robinson of the Prometheus, and in his report he states that, after being introduced to the foreign seaman referred to in the above letter, and reading the notes which had been taken of his information, he charged him to tell no person what he knew or what was his business, that he was to mess with the captain's coxswain, and that no duty would be required of him. To this the man replied that that was all he desired, that he was willing to give his time, and would ask no remuneration for his intelligence. While the Prometheus was anchored at Funchal, Madeira, captain robinson closely questioned the mysterious seaman whose name was christian cruz he declared that he had been in a hospital ill of yellow fever several years before and with him was a shipmate a spaniard who died of the same malady before his death he told cruz that in eighteen o four he had been on a spanish ship from south america to cadiz with two millions of silver in chests. When nearing the coast of Spain, they were signaled by a neutral vessel that England had declared war and that Cadiz was blockaded. Rather than risk capture by the British fleet, and unwilling to run all the way back to South America, the captain resolved to try to gain the nearest of the West Indies and save his treasure. Passing to the southward of Madeira, a cluster of small uninhabited islands called the Salvages was sighted. Thereupon the crew decided that it was foolishness to continue the voyage. The captain was accordingly stabbed to death with a dirk, and the ship steered to anchorage. The chests of Spanish dollars were landed in a small bay, a deep trench dug in the sand above high-water mark, and the treasure snugly buried, the body of the captain deposited in the box on top of it. The mutineers then sought the Spanish main, where they intended to burn their ship, buy a small vessel under British colors, and return to carry off the two million dollars. Near Tobago, they suffered shipwreck because of poor navigation, and only two were saved. One died ashore, and the other was the Spanish seaman, who made a dying declaration to Christian Cruz in the hospital at Vera Cruz. Captain Hercules Robinson was a seasoned officer of His Majesty's Navy, used to taking sailors' yarns with a grain of salt, but that he was convinced of the good faith of Christian Cruz and of the truth of the narrative is shown by his interesting comments, as he wrote them down a century ago. May Cruz not have had some interested object in fabricating this story? Why did he not tell it before? Is it not the cold-blooded murder, inconceivable barbarity, and the burying the body over the treasure too dramatic and buccaneer-like? Or might not the Spaniard have lied from love of lying, mystifying his simple shipmate? Or might he not have been raving? As to the first difficulty, I have the strongest conviction of the honesty of Christian Cruz, and I think I could hardly be grossly deceived as to his character, and his disclaiming any reward unless the discovery was made, went to confirm my belief that he was an honest man and then, as to his withholding the information for four or five years, be it remembered that the war with Denmark might have truly shut him out from any intercourse with England? Next, as to the wantness and indifference with which the murder was perpetrated, I am afraid there is no great improbability in this. I have witnessed a disregard of human life in matters of promotion in our service, etc., which makes the conduct of these Spaniards under vehement temptation, and when they could do as they pleased, sufficiently intelligible." but certainly the coffin over the treasure looked somewhat theatrical and gave it the air of Sadler's Wells or a novel, rather than matter-of-fact. I inquired, therefore, from Christian Cruz why the body of the captain was thus buried, and he replied that he understood the object was, that in case any person should find the marks of their proceedings and dig to discover what they had been about, it might come to the body and go no further. After further reflection, Captain Robinson convinced himself that the Spanish seaman had been clear-headed when he made his confession to Cruz, and that it would have been beyond him, deliberately, to invent the statement as fiction. The Prometheus was headed for the salvages, and arriving off the largest of these islands, a bay was found at a level white patch of beach, above high-water mark, situated, as had been described to Christian Cruz, Fifty sailors were sent ashore to dig with shovels and boarding pikes, making the sand fly in the hope of winning the reward of a hundred dollars offered to the man who found the murdered captain's coffin. The search lasted only one day because the anchorage was unsafe and Captain Robinson was under orders to return to Madeira. Arriving there, other orders recalled his ship to England for emergency duty and the treasure hunt was abandoned. So far as known, no other attempt had been made to find chests of dollars until Mr. Knight decided to act on the information and explore the salvages in passing. Of this little group of islands, it was decided by the company of the alert that the one called the Great Pinton most closely answered the description given Christian crews by the Spanish pirate. A bay was found with a strip of white sand above high-water mark, and Mr. Knight and his shipmates pitched a camp nearby and had the most sanguine expectations of bringing to light the rude coffin of the murdered captain. A series of trenches was opened up after a systematic plan, and some crumbling bones discovered, but the ship's surgeon refused to swear that they had belonged to a human being. Trouble was that the surface of the place had been considerably changed by the actions of waves and weather, which made the admiralty charts of a century before very misleading. The destination of the alert was Trinidad, after all, and the visit to the salvages was only an incident, so the search was abandoned after four days. In all probability, the treasure of the salvages is still in its hiding place, and any adventurous young gentleman seeking a field of operations will do well to consult for themselves. The documentary evidence of Captain Hercules Robinson, Christian Cruz, as filed among the records of the British Admiralty Office, Trinidad is a much more difficult island to explore than any of the salvages' group. In fact, this forbidding mass of volcanic rock is a little bit of inferno. It is sometimes impossible to make a landing through the surf for weeks at a time, and when a boat makes the attempt in the most favorable circumstances, the venture is a hazard of life and death. As a vivid summary of the aspect of this lonely treasure island, I quote from Mr. Knight, as he is the only man who has ever described Trinidad at first hand. As we neared it, the features of this extraordinary place could gradually be distinguished. The north side, that which faced us, is the most barren and desolate portion of the island, and appears to be utterly inaccessible. Here the mountains rise sheer from the boiling surf, fantastically shaped volcanic kind of rock cloven by frightful ravines, lowering in perpendicular precipices, in places overhanging threateningly. And where the mountains have been shaken to pieces by the fires and earthquakes of volcanic action, huge landslips slope steeply in the yawning ravines-landslips of black and red volcanic debris and loose rocks large as houses, ready on the slightest disturbance to roll down crashing into the abysses below. On the summit of the island there floats almost constantly, even on the clearest day, a wreath of dense vapor, never still, but rolling and twisting into strange shapes as the wind eddies among the crags and above this cloud wreath rise mighty pinnacles of coal black rock, like the spires of some gigantic gothic cathedral piercing the blue southern sky. It would be impossible to convey in words a just idea of the mystery of Trinidad. The very colouring seemed unearthly in places dismal black. In others the fire consumed crags are of strange metallic hues, vermilion red and copper yellow. When one lands on its shores this uncanny impression is enhanced. It bears all the appearances of being an accursed spot, Whereupon no creatures can live save the hideous land crabs and foul and cruel seabirds, an ideal place this for pirates to bury treasure you will agree, and good for nothing else under heaven. The South Atlantic Directory, the shipmaster's guide, states that the surf is often incredibly great and has been seen to break over a bluff which is two hundred feet high. Trinidad was first visited by Halley, the astronomer, after whom the famous Comet was named, who called there in 1700 when he was a captain in the Royal Navy. Captain Amos Delano, the Yankee pioneer in the Far Eastern trade, made a call in 1803, prompted by curiosity. But as a rule, mariners have given the island a wide berth, now and then touching there when in need of water or fresh meat in the shape of turtles at one time the portuguese attempted to found a settlement on trinidad probably before the forest had been killed by some kind of volcanic upheaval the ruins of their stone huts are still to be seen as humble memorials of a great race of explorers and colonists in the golden age of that nation With tremendous exertion, the party from the alert was landed with its tools and stores, and headquarters established close to the ravine, which was believed to be the hiding place of the treasure, as indicated by the chart and information of the Finn quartermaster with scar across his cheek. It was found that there had been no actual landslide, but the ravine was choked with large boulders, which at various times had fallen from the cliffs above. These were packed together by the red earth, silting and washing during the rainy season when the ravines were flooded. Along the whole of the windward coast were found innumerable fragments of wreckage, spars timbers, barrels. From the position of the island and the belt of the southeast trade winds, many derelict vessels must have been driven ashore. Some of this immense accumulation of stuff may have lain there for centuries, or ever since vessels first doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Here and there were the gaunt rows of ribs to show where a ship had been stranded bodily, and doubtless much valuable property in silver and gold, in bars, ingots, and doubloons lies buried in the shattered hulks of these old Dutch East Indiamen, men and galleons from Peru. As particular landmarks near the ravine, the pirate had mentioned three cairns which he and his comrades had heaped up sure enough the previous treasure-seekers of the Arya expedition from england had found the three cairns but foolishly demolished them on the chance that gold might be buried underneath mr knight could find traces of only one of them and he discovered also a water jar a broken wheelbarrow and other tools to show where the others had been digging The crew of the alert were confident that they were at the right place, and they set to work with the most admirable zeal and fortitude, enduring hardships cheerfully, and during the three months of their labors on Trinidad, removing earth and rock literally by the thousands of tons, until the ravine was scooped out to a depth of from eight to twenty feet. Their vessel had to anchor far offshore, and once forsook them for a fourteen hundred mile voyage to Bahia to get provisions. These London lawyers and other gentlemen, unused to toil with the hands, became as tough and rough and disreputable to see as the pirates who had been there aforetime. In costume of shirt, trousers, and belt, they became ragged and stained from head to foot with the soil, and presented a uniform, dirty, brownish-yellow appearance like so many Brazilian convicts. Their surf boat was wrecked or upset at almost every attempt to land or go off to the alert, and when they were not fishing one another out of the surf, they were diving to recover their submerged and scattered stores. Their leader, Mr. Knight, paid them a tribute of which they must have been proud. They had toiled hard and kept up their spirits all the while, and what is really wonderful, under circumstances so calculated, to try the temper and wear out the patience, they had got on exceedingly well with each other, and there had been no quarreling or ill feeling of any sort. At length the melancholy verdict was agreed upon in council, All the bright dreams of carrying home a fortune for every adventurer were reluctantly dismissed. The men were worn to the bone, and it was becoming more and more difficult to maintain communication with the alert. The prodigious excavation was abandoned, and Mr. Knight indulged himself in a soliloquy as he surveyed the great trenches, piled up mounds of earth, the uprooted rock with broken wheelbarrows and blocks, worn out tools and other relics of our three months strewn over the ground, and it was sad to think that all the energy of these men had been spent in vain, they well deserved to succeed and all the more so because they bore their disappointment with so much pluck and cheerfulness but in truth the expedition had not been in vain the toilers had been paid in richer stuff than gold they had lived the true romance nor could a man of spirit and imagination wish for anything more to his taste than to be encamped on a desert island with the surf shouting in his ears Seabirds crying, all hands up with daybreak, to dig for buried treasure, whose bearings were found on a tarpaulin chart that belonged to a pirate with a deep scar across his cheek. How it would have delighted the heart of Robert Louis Stevenson to be one of this company of the alert Trinidad, a gallant little vessel only sixty-four feet long she was, filled away for the West Indies, homeward bound, while the men aboard amused themselves by wondering how many nations might have laid claim to the treasure had it been found. England, which hoisted its flag on Trinidad in 1770, Portugal, because Portuguese from Brazil made a settlement there in 1750, Brazil, because the island lay off her coast, Spain, to whom the treasure had belonged, and Peru, from whose cathedral it was taken, and lastly, the Roman Church. In conclusion, Mr. Knight, to whose fascinating narrative, The Cruise of the Alert, I am indebted for the foregoing information, sums it up like a true soldier of fortune. Well, indeed, it was for us that we had not found the pirate's gold, for we seemed happy enough as we were, and if possessed of this hoard, our lives would of a certainty have become a burden to us. We should be too precious to be comfortable. We should degenerate into miserable, fearsome hypochondriacs, careful of our means of transit, dreadfully anxious about what we ate or drank, miserably cautious about everything, Better far, no doubt,' exclaimed these cheerful philosophers, "'to remain the careless, happy paupers that we are. "'Do you still believe in the existence of the treasure?' "'is a question that has often put to me since my return. "'Knowing all I do, I have very little doubt "'that the story of the Finn quartermaster is substantially true, "'that the treasures of Lima were hidden on Trinidad, "'but whether they have been taken away, or whether they are still there, "'and we fail to find them because we are not in possession "'of one length of directions, I am unable to say.' In later years, E.F. Knight became a war correspondent and lost an arm in the Boer Campaign. I met him at Key West during the Spanish War, in which he represented the London Times, and found him to be a solid, well-ballasted man who knew what he was about, and not at all one to have gone treasure-seeking without excellent reasons. That he was adventurous in his unassuming way, he proved by landing on the Cuban coast near Havana in order to interview the Spanish Captain General newspaper dispatch boat ran close inshore, the skipper risking being blown out of the water by the batteries of Morrow Castle, and Knight was transferred to a tiny flat-bottomed skiff of the tonnage of a bathtub. Equipped with a notebook, revolver, water bottle, and a small package of sandwiches, he said goodbye in his very placid manner and was seen to be standing on his head in the surf a few minutes later. He scrambled ashore, probably recalling to mind a similar style of landing on the coast of Trinidad and vanished into the jungle that he ran grave danger of being potted for an Americano by the first Spanish patrol he encountered appeared to give him no concern whatever. It was easy to perceive that he must have been the right kind of man to lead a treasure-hunting expedition. Since the alert sailed her Dashing Quest in 1889, the Pirate's Gold of Trinidad has figured in an adventure even more fantastic. Many readers will doubtless remember the career of the late Baron James Hardenhickey, who attempted to establish a kingdom of his own on the islet of Trinidad. He belonged in another age than this, and he was laughed at rather more than deserved. Duelist, editor, Boulevardier, fond of the tinsel and trappings of life, he married the daughter of John H. Flager of the Standard Oil Company, and with funds from this excessively commercial source, created a throne, a court, and a kingdom... He had seen the island of Trinidad from a British merchant ship, which he hit round the horn in 1888, and the fact that this was a derelict bit of real estate to which no nation thought it worth while to lay formal claim, appealed to his active imagination. A would-be king has difficulty in finding a stray kingdom nowadays, and Hardenhickey bothered his head, not in the least, for the problem of populating this godforsaken jumble of volcanic rock and ashes. Ere long he blossomed forth most gorgeously in Paris and York as King James the First of the Principality of Trinidad. There was a royal cabinet, a minister of foreign affairs, a chancellery in uniforms, court costumes, and regalia designed by the king himself. Most dazzling of all the equipment was the order of the insignia of the Cross of Trinidad, a patent and decoration of nobility to be bestowed on those deemed worthy of the signal-honor. The newspapers bombarded King James I with jibes and jeers, but he took himself with immense, even tragic seriousness, and issued a prospectus of the settlement of his kingdom, inviting an aristocracy of intellect and good breeding to comprise the ruling class. While the hard work was to be done by the hired menials, he mustered on paper some kind of a list of resources of Trinidad, although he was hard put to name anything very tangible, and laid special stress on the buried treasure, it was to be dug up by the subjects and found to be divided among the patriots who had bought the securities issued by the royal treasury. Surely a pirate's treasure was never before gravely offered among the assets of a kingdom, but King James had no sense of humor, and the lost treasure was as real to him as any other of his marvelous dreams. Some work was actually done at Trinidad, building material landed, a vessel chartered to run from Brazil, and a few misguided colonists recruited. When in 1895 the British government ruthlessly knocked the Principality of Trinidad into a cocked hat and toppled over the throne of King James I, the island was wanted as a cable landing or relay station, and a naval officer raised the Red Ensign to proclaim annexation by reason of Halley's discovery in 1700. At this, Brazil set a protest on the ground that her Portuguese had been the original settlers. While the diplomats of these two powers were politely locking horns over the question of ownership, that unfortunate monarch, King James I, the Principality of Trinidad, Baron Harden Hickey of the Holy Roman Empire, perceived that his realm had been pulled out from under him, so to speak. Whichever nation won the dispute, it meant no comfort for him. Trinidad was no longer a derelict island, and he was a king without a kingdom. He surrendered not one jot or tittle of his rights, and to his minister of foreign affairs he solemnly bequeathed the succession and the claim to proprietorship. And among these rights and privileges was the royal interest in the buried treasure. Hardin Hickey, when he could no longer live a king, died as he thought befitting a gentleman by his own hand. It seems a pity that he could not have been left alone to play at being king and to find the pirate's gold. End of chapter 9